Good morning. My name is Mark. It is great to be with you this morning. Can I just say I love this space. Thank you whoever decided not to have stained glass windows here. This nice bright light is wonderful. It's a lively meeting space. It's great. James and Blake, can you guys come up here right now? Uh, about 11 or 12 years ago, your senior pastor was an intern at our church. We had the joy of having Mike Law as an intern. Uh, our church gives a sizable amount of money to try to prepare young men for the ministry every year. Here are two brothers who are with me today. They're going to share briefly about why they're doing the internship and what they're getting out of it. And that's going to give you a better idea how you can pray. You guys each have about 60 seconds because I'd like the time for the sermon. James, you're up first. Hi, my name is James McNair. Um, I've, been, I've been a member at CHPC now for about a year and a half. Um, my, my hope and my, my goal for doing the internship is to really get a better heart for God's passion for his bride, for his church. Um, as a child, I grew up in Europe um, long term, Lord willing. I would like to go back to Europe and serve in some capacity in helping his church be well known. So, yeah. Uh, my name is Blake Boylston. I'm from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, my wife and two kids, we moved up here by faith and accepted this opportunity to be in the internship. And I, I've been in pastoral ministry as a janitor as well as a local church pastor at the same time. And um, this ministry at Capitol Hill and this internship uh, I thought would be a great opportunity to be further equipped to better care for God's church. So I hope after these five months that will be our end and the Lord would have me serve in some capacity uh, for his bride, the church. Thanks, brother. Uh, the other four guys who are here as interns, would you stand up? So if you want to talk to any of these afterwards, they're happy to talk to you. Look at them all sitting in the front. I didn't even tell them to. Thanks, guys. All right. Um, we appreciate Arlington Baptist Church and the way you've cooperated with us in ministry over the years. So Eric Pelletier, your chairman of the elders, was one of our elders when we were setting up this program. So we're thankful for that work. Uh, also, as your elders have supported a good new work in Philadelphia called Risen Christ Fellowship, and I was with Shylin and Blair uh, and Brian Davis yesterday uh, up in Philadelphia, and they just specifically mentioned how they appreciated the elders' support here. Also, uh, as Nine Marks guy, I want to thank you all for your generous support of Nine Marks Ministries. Uh, it really helps us trying to help other churches around the nation and around the world. And I just want you to know that Arlington Baptist Church is prayed for regularly by name at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We're thankful. Uh, for your witness and I'm glad to be here with you. How wonderful to begin a week. You realize when you woke up this morning you began a new week. Pretty exciting. So you began a new week and what do you get to do with the first part of your week? You get to look at God's Word, the Bible. Now far more important it seems like than any of us as individuals or any of our churches is the Bible. Everybody in the world knows about the Bible. Most people don't know much really about the Bible but they know that it exists. You know what you're gonna get this morning? You're gonna get to become an expert in one book of the Bible. In the exchange for the time you've agreed to spend here, I want you to try to get to know one book in the Bible really well. Let's leave the 39 books of the Old Testament out for a minute. Let's go to those 27 in the New Testament. Okay, we could pick any of those. Let's put the Gospels aside. They're kind of large. All right, so now we've got Paul's letters and the other letters. We'll put Paul's letters aside. They're preached on a lot. Now we've got the other letters. Let's pick James. It's small and it gets up in your business. So James has five chapters. If you take your pew Bible and turn to page 1011, you're going to want to leave it open. You will pay better attention. This next period of time, notice he doesn't say how long, will be more enjoyable for you. You will endure it better. You will get more out of it. You're going to give it time. You might as well get more out of it. Open up to page 1011. Look at the book of James. By the time we're finished together, 
even if, you don't, if, even if you're not a Christian, you're just visiting here today, I'd like you to be able to say, I know, I understand this one book uh, in the New Testament actually pretty well. Uh, it's the letter of James. We'll be flipping around it a good bit. Uh, you can follow along, you can read along, you can take notes, you can simply listen. What James does in this letter is he puts forward clear practical instruction after clear practical instruction. So in this book, James lines up one truth, and then a second truth, and that's when he gets his readers just where he wants them for his point, which is the third truth. So that's what I want to just rehearse with you guys today. It's very specific to their situation in the first century, but it also applies to us, I think, very directly. So James lines up one truth on this side and another on that in order to bring home a third kind of hard-hitting truth right in the middle. In doing this, he seems to expose three always popular religious myths. So that's what I want to do. So if you're taking notes, three ideas most people who live around you have about religion or that you may have yourself that are actually false. Myth number one, trials are bad. Trials are bad. Now there's an obvious way in which that's true. Let me just say immediately, unless you're a masochist, you want to avoid pain, whether it's physical or psychological. We have, a, we have an inbuilt instinct for self-preservation, for survival. But I think we tend to mean more than that, though, when we assume that trials are bad. If you think about it, behind that is the assumption that good is immediately self-evident. So if we don't perceive immediately, as soon as we hear something, read something, taste something, experience something, if we, don't, if we don't immediately perceive it's good, we tend to think, ah, this is bad. But that's very interesting. If you look at James, look at how this little letter begins. James says here in chapter 1, and again, if you're not used to looking at the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers after it. James says here in chapter 1, verse 2, that trials are actually reasons for joy. And this is the first truth that James wants to imprint in his reader's mind. He's working against their natural tendency to avoid trials. He's lessening their incentive to choose the easy path. He says trials are actually the way to maturity. Look there in chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Friends, we've all seen this. Testing develops. Working out builds. Marriage sanctifies. Now, once James has said this, we can see it. But it may be a bit surprising or counterintuitive for us today. And one of the main reasons that trials are the way to maturity is because it's trials that cause us to depend self-consciously on God. Look there in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Friends, when, when we all experience trials, and we think we can experience them and survive them in our own strength, and all we do is only stuff that we can do in our own strength, how do we expect to ever learn to rely on God? I understand wanting to avoid trials, that's natural, but you realize in God's love, He puts us in circumstances in which we have no option. The Bible is full of stories again and again of people coming to a position where they are utterly hopeless. You think of the children of Israel being led in the Exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're taken supernaturally through all these signs and miracles. They're, they're brought out. They're, they're at the Red Sea. They've got mountains on both sides. The Egyptian army behind them. It does not look promising. Why would God lead them there? Because they have no way out except for Him to very obviously deliver them. You and I naturally lead our lives in a way that tries to avoid depending on God. We live in this silly illusion that we are more dependable than God. When if you actually just had better self-knowledge and a really honest friend and talked about your last year, you would see how, of course, that's not true. But we all live in this delusion that we are more dependable than God. But you know what? God is so kind. He puts us in circumstances again and again where we have to depend on Him if we're going to have any way out. That, that's why trials are part of God's love for us. One of the main reasons that we see this is that trials are a part of God's good purposes because He uses them to teach us to depend on them. It's different than temptations. Temptations to evil are temptations to death. They don't come from God. We don't want to be deceived about this. Look in in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. But no one say, when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Besides this life and all its trappings, are passing. I have young guys coming to the internship all the time, some of them with impressive physical attributes, and I usually let them know, you know guys, these are leaving. I mean, this is a temporary deal. I see young, young people on the hill who are advancing their careers, and they think the world's their oyster. Yeah, guys, all of this stuff is going to pass. You know, James says it so clearly here, look there in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lonely brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Friends, you see the importance of this for us, don't you? I mean, trials strengthen our faith because they cause us to practice trusting God for what we do not immediately see. Embracing trials doesn't mean pretending they're not trials. It's not positive thinking. It simply means letting our responses to them not be determined by how we first feel, by how we first immediately want to respond. Friends, this is a basic human lesson. I mean, how many times do parents have to do this with their children? Do doctors have to do this with patients? Do good public servants have to do this if they're to serve them well? I mean, if you're a friend, you're to be faithful. And your emotions, they don't always tell you the truth. Not that emotions are bad. It's just as they're, they're as unreliable as the winds are to the airplane pilot. My brother-in-law is a pilot with Delta, and I love getting stories about, you know, flying. And, uh, you know, when, when the tailwind, when you've got a good tailwind, man, that can, that can shorten your trip hugely. When you've got headwinds, that's slowing you down. And you can have very dangerous shear, wind shears. Friends, it's not that emotions are bad. It's just you can't relax into them and trust them to lead you or guide you. They weren't built for that. Trials strengthen our faith because they cause us to practice trusting God for what we don't immediately see. So remember, this doesn't mean that you pretend they're not trials. It simply means you don't let your response to them be determined by how you first feel. I remember as a, a child in school hearing this verse by Robert Browning Hamilton. And it, it's simple, it's true. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. So myth number one, trials are bad. That's just a mistake. It's not true. Myth number two, Faith is what I think. Faith is what I think. Now again, there's an obvious way in which this is true. Faith, belief, must involve the cognitive. You know, a, a rock may sit, a plant may grow, an animal may have instincts, but, but people believe. And much of belief of faith is essentially tied up with thinking thoughts. That's true. And yet James wants to line up a second truth here, which is a little different than this first one. And that is that, that faith is what you think and what you do. Um, to put it in his words. The point of hearing isn't simply knowing, it's doing. So we are to accept the word. That's his phrase. Look in uh, chapter 1 verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, friends, to receive the word means to do it. Let's keep reading there. Verse uh, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we're to accept the word, and that means doing it, 
Because God desires us to live a righteous life. Look back in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Friends, any religion you have or faith that is believed but is not lived is worthless. That's what he says in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And he gets very specific. He says it's worthless because God doesn't think anything of it. Look at the next verse, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, a kind of thinking that I'm accepting the word but not, not living it out is frankly dangerous. Again, up in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearing without doing really confuses us. And it is self-deceiving. Now, he has a very specific application to them he wants to give. And that is about favoritism. That's about treating people differently just because of external things about them. Maybe I think they could help me in a job. Maybe I think they're, they're, they're pretty or in some way attractive. Maybe this person is wealthy. Their specific thing they were struggling with was the wealth thing. So what was going on? These Christians heard the word. They heard specifically Leviticus 19, verse 18, which tells us in the Old Testament to love our neighbor as ourselves. So they heard this royal law of love, and they knew it was to be obeyed. Look there in chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Friends, this, this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, it makes no sense being heard but not obeyed. I and mean, it's about love. It's about love. It's about how you treat other people. And especially, he says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, up there in chapter 2, verse 1. I mean, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ should be livers, living out the word of all people. We should know better. We should live better than to show respect to persons based on externals like wealth, like they were apparently doing. Because, friends, God didn't send out any financial application forms when he was inviting us into the kingdom of heaven. He does, he does not ask us how much we're worth in the world's eyes. That is nothing like the good news of Jesus Christ. Look here in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Friends, that's what apparently they were doing in some of these early churches. And you realize how that's the exact opposite of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we are all made in the image of God and we've all sinned against God and separated ourselves from Him. 
But in his amazing love and mercy, he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a life of complete love and trust and dependence on his heavenly father. But then Jesus, surprise ending, died. Died being rejected. Died a death. He didn't have to die. He didn't deserve it morally. He didn't deserve it religiously. He didn't deserve it in any way. But he died a death that he did not deserve. Why did he die that death? He specifically laid down his life. He chose to because of God's love for people who don't deserve that love. He died on the cross as a substitute, taking God's right wrath for everyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in Him. And God raised Him from the dead to show He accepted the sacrifice. He ascended to heaven, presented the sacrifice to His Father. Friends, this is the news that we proclaim today, that you can be forgiven of your sins, have a new life. Jesus used the image of being born again, a radical image. And you can be in a relationship with God, the one who made you, the one who knows why you're alive. You want purpose? Purpose is getting to know why you're here. It's getting to know the one who made you. The one who has a reason for this week being like this week is in your life. And if you start treating people differently because they're rich, it's just showing everybody you must not know what it means to be a Christian. Because God has done nothing like that with you. He looked for the people who did not deserve and would bring nothing to him. And he showed his love and mercy to us. So, what do you mean if you say you've heard of God's concern for the poor if you don't reflect that in your own life. Like look here in chapter 2 verse 5. Listen my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world. To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. We don't know exactly what the situation was, but it seems that the rich were oppressing the people in James's church. They were like defrauding of their wages, maybe taking them to courts to sue them, to, to get like the last penny out of them. And at the same time, when these rich people would turn up at church, the Christians would just kind of toady up to them. And it was just a, this, this sick relationship. And it completely defamed the gospel. Well, James has got the people listening to this squirming by this point. And he wants to make it really clear they can't just decide this is not important. Like, well, okay, you know, we're not doing really well at showing love, but we keep this command and this command and this command really well. Have you ever noticed your own tendency to think what's really bad is not the stuff you do? but it's what other people do? Maybe you're watching TV and you think, oh, I would never do that. Do you notice how you're like, you have this relative moral line that you always locate where you're just inside the okay. James is not having any of that. No, look there in verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Let me tell you a less good and a better way to understand those verses. I've heard these things explained by, people read that and think, that's severe. And they go, you know, it's like a chain. It's like all of God's commands. Each one is a link. And, you know, if you break any of these individual commands, oh, the chain's broken. True. No analogy is perfect. I think that makes God come off seeming a little petty. Because I've still got too many good links of chain right here, you know. But it's interesting, that's not the way James argues. Do you see what James does in verse 11? The key thing is he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. See, when you and I sin, it exposes the truth of one aspect of our relationship with God. The, the crucial thing is not what he tells us to do, but that he tells us to do it. So all the time you're looking good and moral and churchly when it's just like, that's kind of how you like to live. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, maybe it's an evidence of a new heart. I want to be careful. But in and of itself, it may not mean anything. Because when you show those times when you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, that's showing that when that same God has told you these things and you don't do those, all those times when you appeared to believe, they were just things you kind of wanted to do anyway. It's when you come on those things, when you don't want to do, that then it shows, are you doing what you want to do? Or are you doing what God wants you to do? Because when you do what God wants you to do, even when it's those times when you don't naturally want to do that, because you're obeying Him and you know He says that, you go that way. For He who said also said. So, you know, my wife Connie can uh, tell me, Mark, I want you to get a can of cream of mushroom soup from the store. And I can go to the store and deliberately just buy some dog food and bring it home. And she can say to me, well, didn't you know I told you to get some cream of mushroom soup? And I go, yep. Well, did they not have any? No, they had some. Well, you just got the dog food. What's going on? I just chose to do something else. All right, what does that do? That doesn't, it's not that the dog food or the cream of mushroom soup is so important. It speaks about my relationship to my wife. Friends, when God tells us something clearly and we don't do it, it speaks about our relationship with God. So if these people are saying, well, favoritism, we're not so good on that. There are a lot of things we're good on. James is making it very clear. Look, you break one of them, you've, you've become a transgressor. You've now exposed what your real relationship to God is. So, he gives this strong warning. There is a faith which is useless. It is dead. And that is faith that is not acted out. Look there in chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will so say, you have faith and I have works. Now, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Basically, he gives three examples to make his point here. On the one hand, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe 
and shudder. You know, knowing without doing is what characterizes the demons. On the other hand, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So he points to the father of the faithful, Abraham. And the father of the faithful had his faith made complete by what he did. His faith was real. Or, then he goes to the opposite extreme. For another example, verse 25, just to make his point. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So even the most unlikely figure, a prostitute, showed her faith not simply by what she knew or said, but by what she did. Friends, the application for us is clear. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by faith alone. But if that faith is real, saving faith, it will affect what we do. There will be a satisfaction in knowing the truth about God and knowing His love and favor. I think sometimes the word faith or the word believe can seem weak to us. You know, believed in, relied on, cling to. That's the, the idea in the scripture. So who's the believer according to James? The one who merely knows and has, has some kind of unemployed faith? Or the one who lives out of God's word? Who's saved by that faith that's never alone. But that faith that is always accompanied by acts and evidences. So that, that's myth number two. Faith is what I think. The truth is, faith is what I love. Faith is, is what I think and do. It's what I love. It shows itself in what I do. Third myth. So number one, trials are bad. Number two, faith is what I think. Number three, it's what everybody around you thinks. Religion is a private matter. Religion is a private matter. Again, as with the other two myths, there is an obvious way this is true. You know, it is very personal. It has to be personal, to be genuine. I think often people say religion is a private matter. They just mean, I don't want to talk to you about this. That's basically what they're saying. And yet in the name of religion or spirituality, you have many people today talking about how this life is mine to do with as I please. What we want to do is take possession, take control of our destinies. So religion becomes a kind of tool of self-mastery, of self-development. Uh, the 20th century playwright Tennessee Williams explaining why he had given up visiting his psychoanalyst said he was meddling too much in my private life. I think we tend to have a, a tendency of thinking about our religion as a part of our own private lives. You know, we've got our fantasies, we've got our ambitions, we've got our fears. But friends, if what James has been saying is true, if our faith has to be acted out, then any true faith, any saving faith, any Christian faith cannot finally be private. Personal, definitely. No question about that. But finally, not private. 
Because both God and His people are involved. It, it, it involves what, what I do with my words, with my time, with my money, even with my desires for pleasure. It involves all that. So any religion which isn't just thoughts and opinions, but which includes deeds and actions, cannot be entirely private. This is why Christianity is never going to be satisfied with freedom of worship. The current really popular political phrase. Freedom of worship is not what was established in the Bill of Rights. We have freedom of religion. Christianity is a very pushy religion. It is not satisfied with one hour on Sunday morning or three. You know, it wants seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Friends, it's just because if we love the Lord, He masters our entire lives. It affects everything we do. Well, this is, this is really the third truth that James wanted to get to. He, he's lined up the first two. He gets to his point, his main punch here. He's already said that hard times, trials are used by God. That's chapter 1. Okay? For good purposes. And he's established that true belief isn't merely up in your head. It includes your head. But it entails how you live. That's chapter 2. He's got those two things lined up. So now, he kind of has them pinned, you know, one hand on each of their cognitive wrists right there. He has them to learning not to despise the hard, and they can't ignore any scripture, any truth. Hard truth. You can't, can't dislike it or, or avoid it because it's just because it's hard. You cannot avoid it in the name of, well, I obey other parts of the truth. No, you're going to have to listen to all this. And he applies it then very clearly to their stress-ridden, fraction-prone church. So having shown the goodness of trials and the active nature of faith, James launches into their main problem, and that's what's been happening in their church, and it is division. Their church has been grotesque. It has stunk I think the reason Christianity is doing as poorly as it is in America is because our churches are in such terrible shape. I would not want to be a Christian either if it was like a lot of churches I see. I would like to see churches full of people who really are born again, who love Jesus, and people who don't but are really curious because of what they see going on. Not churches that are filled with consumers because the staff will provide for them something that will excite them enough that they will come. Friends, what's going on here in this church? There's been boasting going on in the church. Look there in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Sounds like some denominational officials I know. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, Deo Volente, DV, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. They've been boasting. They've been hurting brothers with their words. Maybe in anger. Maybe that's why back in chapter 1, verse 19, you know, he says, know this my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Maybe he says that because there's been a lot of anger. They've been maybe cursing brothers, it looks like. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that what you teach will be judged with a greater strictness, 
For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we would bitch into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large, they're driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. It has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's saying that, that using our language to tear others down is inconsistent with praising the God in whose image they're made. Slandering them, apparently, is going on. Look over in chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So slandering uh, brothers, grumbling against brothers. Look over in, in chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So there's this boasting, there's this hurting brothers with their words. There's oppressing the poor. Chapter 5, look at how chapter 5 begins. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. They've been oppressing the poor. There's the real danger of careless teaching that says all this is okay. That's why I think he says there in three one, not many of your brothers should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think that's interesting that that's the sentence that opens up the whole rest of the book, which is where James is getting to his specifics. I wonder if some people had been teaching and justifying their selfishness. And do you know how many that, times that happens? In religious circles, talking about purpose in life, talking about best life now, talking about hedonism. There are so many varieties of ways that as Christians, we can begin to smuggle in a wrong regard for ourselves. James is saying that any true teaching about wisdom shows itself by its fruits. Look in chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you had bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. See, true wisdom, he's saying, would bring peace and righteousness. Uh, verse 17, we keep reading. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm struck when I read this letter of James how many of the words are about our words. It's about what we say. Friends, I bet you if I got to know you well, I would find there are words that have lodged in your memory from years and years ago that continue to do violence to you. There are other words that have lodged there that have been life-giving for years and maybe even decades. Friends, words are powerful. They have tremendous effects on people. We may think of our words primarily as self-expression, but as Christians, we know that's not true. Just like all of our money is to be used for God, all of our words are to express God's concerns. Our words are given us to speak, to testify about God. All of our words belong to God. We see here in chapters 3 and 4 that our speech is not primarily about expressing ourselves, but about expressing God's character. With speech, we have an opportunity to reflect God and to bring unity to people. So this is what's been happening, I think, in the church. Division. And why has it been happening? Well, he gets into the root causes there. If you look from chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, into chapter 4. That's where he gets there. And I think the ugly heart of it, in a word, is just selfishness. It's just been selfishness. A selfish ambition. This selfishness that's evil that he condemns there in that um, chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. The, the selfish pleasure-seeking, look at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, the pursuit of pleasure for myself and my own ends seems wrong. It seems closely related here to pride. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Friends, pride is one of the root causes of these troubles. So what can be done about this kind of problem of selfishness? Well, you address these 
root causes. First, simply identifying the root causes helps. Selfishness and pride, overconcern with me, narcissism, egocentrism. This selfishness should give way to humble submission to God. Friends, the way up with God is down before Him. Trust Him. So are you seeing how you can address these kinds of root problems? By facing facts, realize that your life is not your own. You and all you have belongs to God. Now, now they weren't living like that. They were living like worldly people who think their lives are their own. That's why James there in chapter 4, verse 4, calls them adulterous people. They were religious bigamists. They would go to church sometimes and act like they were believers, but then they would live like they were not believers. Friends, time itself isn't yours. It belongs to God. Even pleasure is God's to give, not yours to take. Look at the motives for why you pray. You don't just want to spend things on yourself, particularly at the expense of others. Furthermore, realize that judgment by God is coming even as this world's wealth is passing away. As we see at the beginning of chapter 5 in that section I read. Or back in chapter 1, verse 11, so the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God will judge you for how you spend your money. We live life best in this world when we remember the next world. We live life best in this world when we remember the next world. There's a lot of language in here about God's judgment and about accountability. And if you're still having trouble, realize that this judgment is coming soon. He says the judge is standing at the door. So for some people, for non-Christians here today, that means you need to repent. You need to change. You need to turn to God. You need to want to know what that means. Talk to the people here. I'll be standing at that door on the way out. I think Eric will be standing over here. Lots of us here would be happy to talk to you about that. That's why we begin our weeks doing this. No law makes us do it. We simply freely choose to be here. And remember that persevering in suffering is blessed. If you're a believer, be patient for the Lord's coming and wait. Just like the farmer does. He uses that illustration that you see that in chapter 5. Over in verse 7. Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold the judges at its door standing. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Persevering in suffering is blessed. He gives the example of Job there. Job was a great example of what he talked about in chapter 1. Trials, when you suffer trials, count it all joy. We do live best in this world when we keep the next in mind. So what should they do proactively, positively? Well, they should love peace. True wisdom, he says, brings peace and righteousness. Are you the kind of person when you're in the middle of the group, things start happening in the sense that people get angry, they start falling out? Friends, there's a problem there. There's not a true wisdom there. And pray for the sick. 
Look there in chapter 5 at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And confess your sins to each other. Don't let this church be a self-righteousness club where you let people know the best things about you and you keep back from them the worst. If you're really living with eternity in view, you want to let people know the worst things about you. Don't mention the best. Let my praise be in another man's mouth, not my own. Confess sins to each other. Look there in verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He really values and he instructs us to value the prayers of the righteous people among you. In verse 16, chapter 5, verse 16, he keeps going. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You want to know what you can do? Work to bring back the wanderers. Find those who knew the truth and have wandered away from it. There in chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He encourages a tender concern for each other. Friends, I've never been a member of Arlington Baptist Church. This is my only time ever, ever to gather with you. I pray you are marked by a tender concern for your members, by a tender concern for each other. We show so much of our relationship with God by the way we relate to other people. If we are cool and aloof from others, I, there are times when everybody needs to be like that. But if that typifies our life, we have to wonder how much we know God in whose image they're made. As a Christian, I should know that my primary obligation in this life is not to myself, but is to God and to the body of Christ. I'm to use myself up for others. Friends, that's God's plan for your life too. Realize that your selfishness hurts others and that God will judge you for it. So learn to cherish peace by valuing each other. I've been in more than one members meeting in a Baptist church when somebody has made sharp comments about what they want, what must be the case, and all the time by the very tone and the way they're speaking, it just makes it clear to me, I, I doubt that person's born again. Saved people just aren't carnal like that. They don't talk like that. Maybe this person's been a Baptist for a long time, but I don't think they've ever been born again. They haven't realized that they're actually a sinner that because God is good deserves hell. And God has shown such mercy and kindness and grace to them. When somebody knows that in their own soul, it marks their spirit. It marks the way they speak and treat, uh, treat others. Our Christianity, if it would live up to its name, must affect other people in a loving and godly way. What does it mean that we are followers of Jesus Christ who came and literally, literally gave up his life for others if we don't do that ourselves? So friends, religion is personal, but it's also public. It's very much about how we live together. Myth number three, religion is a private matter. There it is. It's just before noon. That's pretty good. You know, James lays out here day by day practical. Understanding trials, living out your faith, seeking peace with God and others. Understanding trials, living out your faith, 
seeking peace with God and others. That's what James is about. You're now a Bible scholar on James. That's the argument. So, in the spirit of James, I give you this instruction very seriously. Consider your trials joys. Look for how your life makes your beliefs visible. And especially, watch your words. Watch the divisiveness you sow, or that you allow others to sow in the church. And I warn you about this, not as a captain who fears his boat may sink, because things are getting really dangerous here, but as an ambassador of the approaching king. We will all give an account. As James said, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Friends, that's good news for us if we're Christians. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in the way you take all of our trials and use them for your glory and our good. God, we have things going on in our lives that we don't understand how you can use for good. Would you in your kindness, even today, help us to be able to know how to talk to other people about this who would have wisdom from your word? Lord, we want to know you better. Pour out your spirit in our hearts to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.